Our Father, open our eyes, we pray, to behold wondrous things in your word. May we see today something of Christ and of his gospel. Uh, for there's nothing more wondrous, more comforting, more encouraging. So comfort the morning and the afflicted this morning. Motivate the apathetic. Challenge the sinner. Awaken the sleeping. Uh, draw us near to yourself through your word. For your word of truth is what we need. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's stand if we are able to read God's word. Isaiah 53, 1 through 12. And the message primarily this morning will focus on verse 6, but I want to read the whole of 1 through 12. Who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. They made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him as he put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offering he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Amen. Praise God. This is his word. You may be seated. I hate to bring this up after reading such a glorious passage but have you ever seen that show swamp people where they go at, you know, Jimmy and seen it so yeah. 
<laughs> it's a great show. I like that show. Uh, but they go and they hunt gators. And this show follows men who hunt alligators. And there's one guy in particular. He's way down south Louisiana. You can hardly understand him. But he, he, they string baits up from tree limbs. And when the, the gators would grab it, they could tell by the shaking of the, the tree. So they'd get excited and say, we've got a tree shaker. It's a tree shaker. And then one, one time they caught a big one and it broke the limb. So he, he got really excited. It's a tree breaker. A tree breaker. Uh, it reminds me of Second Corinthians 4, 9, 8 and 9. We are afflicted in every way but not crushed. Perplexed but not driven to despair. Persecuted but not forsaken. Struck down but not destroyed. Uh, so what I'm hearing there is we... Sometimes, often in our lives, tie into tree shakers, but not tree breakers in Christ. We're not broken. We may be shaken, but we're not broken. Why are we not broken when we're shaken? The Sunday school answer is Jesus. Jesus died for my sins. May I ask you, though, do you give the Sunday school answer on Monday mornings to yourself? Or is it just something we say at church? Jesus died for my sins. How about Tuesday or Wednesday? When you're really going through stress, is the Sunday school answer just just something we spew out? Or is it something that means something to us through the week? If we're going to drive the piles of our foundations past the shifting topsoil into bedrock, we first need the most basic of truths to be our first and ever-present answer. I am a great sinner, and I need a great Savior. It's basic. It's foundational. It's not just a Sunday school answer. It's an answer for all of life. So we want to begin this series and this sermon by looking at our most basic of needs, the need to be forgiven of our sin. Our sin is the most basic affliction. So again, the focus of this message will be on verse 6. I'll read it again. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. That's our problem. Sheep, sheep have basic needs. uh, Food, water, protection from predation. Uh, And the scary thing about wandering sheep is they're leaving the protection and the provision of their shepherd, right? He has them where he wants them and they go off somewhere else. And our fear when when someone we love wanders from the faith is not so much judgment, although in our sinful hearts it can be that too, but it's concern. You're putting your soul in danger. There are wolves and lions out there that the shepherd is protecting you from. They want to eat your soul. You'll find food and drink that you think will satisfy you, but but... It's actually noxious weeds and tainted water when you leave the protection and provision of the shepherd. And no one is exempt from this. He says, all we, all of us in our natural state, all wander from God, from the shepherd. I mean, uh, I was listening to Paul Tripp on this and he said, who can say all except me? Not everybody else, but not me. It's silly to to deny the most basic need, the the most basic affliction to our persons. Uh, 
Who would hire an oil rig engineer who only designed oil rigs for flat, calm water? If we're going to be anchored in the midst of storms, in the midst of shaking, we have to first admit our greatest threat to the stability of our own souls, and that is sin. It's universally true. And the reason it's stabilizing, and that's the first step to to stabilizing our souls, is because understanding that need drives us to the shepherd, which is where we find stability. It drives us to the solid rock. Who who comes to Jesus in the Gospels? The, the, The very righteous, the Pharisees, or is it the sinners, the tax collectors, and the prostitutes? It's those who recognize their need that come to Jesus. He also says in verse 6 that everyone has turned to his own way. We all want to do our own thing. Uh, In the process, (laughs) I have this image in my mind of a, a large, secure, like naval ship. And here we all are on on the ship with those little Walmart rafts, blowing them up, and we're ready to just go out on our own in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. I I can handle it myself. We're like sheep who who call our our private pasture of noxious weeds home. And, And that's the scary part about sin, is the attraction of it. That we want it. It's not just an external temptation, but we want it. It's not that there's a green pasture over there that looks nice, but full of noxious weeds. It's that we want to go there. And it's that we think we know better than our shepherd. It's that it tugs at the desires deep inside of us. It's that in forsaking the provision and protection of the pasture of the shepherd, we've declared that we trust ourselves more than him. Again, Paul Tripp, he said, How humbling it is to admit that it is only ever the evil inside of me that hooks me to the evil outside of me. That's a, that's a good quote. I'll read it again. How humbling it is to admit that it is only ever the evil inside of me that hooks me to the evil outside of me. You think of a magnet on a table. If you put your hand underneath it and move it around, it won't move. But if you put a magnet in your hand, the magnet on top of the table will follow. The reason we're attracted to sin is because our hearts are polarized to the temptations on the outside of us. So we all do. We all go our own way. And there are consequences for that. A popular understanding of the consequences of sin today are that sin is its own consequence. Which is true. It it does. It ruins our lives. It's like a sheep who eats bad weeds. He's going to feel the effects of it. It's going to ruin our lives. If the sheep sleeps by the lion's den, that's not good for him. Sin itself is its own consequence, but there's more to the consequences of sin than that. Uh, Sin, sin, we've probably heard the definition of sin, that sin is missing the mark. Uh, That's a good definition, but it's not a complete definition, because it gives us the idea that, oh, darn it, I tried my best and just didn't quite get there, and who can blame me for that, for trying my best? 
Like I, I aim for the bullseye, but I got a little bit outside the target. It's okay. But fundamental to sin is also the idea of rebellion. Rebelling against the shepherd. There are relational consequences to forsaking God, who happens to be the, the creator and the judge of the universe. There are grave and ultimate consequences when we reject the way of God and turn to the delight of our own sinful hearts. And that consequence is the righteous wrath of God for rebellion. And it's obvious the severity of sin is seen in what, in this passage, the suffering servant, the Messiah, would have to endure to free us from those consequences. If you look at verse 10, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. This is his punishment for sin, for our sin, to, to put him to grief. Makes an offering for guilt, he says. And in verse 11, the anguish of his soul. He had to endure punishment. He bore our iniquities, he says. And in verse 5, he was crushed for our iniquities. Uh, Alec Motyer says that the word crushed here is used of people being trampled to death or the infliction and enduring of crushing agonies ending in death. This is no small thing. This is no small consequence. The cross shows the severity of sin. And how God, seriously God takes it. The, the consequences of sin are more than circumstantial. They're penal. They, they earn a reward that is punishment. We owe a debt. We can't pay back. So that's our need, our great human need. Sin and its consequences. What are we going to do about it? We must admit our need. We, uh, putting our head in the sand <laughs> will not change the outcome. We need to say, I am indeed a great sinner, and I need a great Savior. So that's our need. Now, what about the promise? The promise in this passage is amazing. Uh, the last conversation that I had with Stan, real conversation on the phone, I went to go fishing um, with my brother. I was away and called him while I was waiting for my brother to see how Stan was doing. He was alert and excited about things. and uh, We talked about assurance. Assurance of salvation. Uh, I was telling him at my new job at Ligonier, people write in and ask questions and the most common question has to do with assurance. How do I know that I'm saved? And of course, Stan, I've been there. <laughs> And here, here's what it comes down to. Here's what we talked about. And here's the, the conclusion he came to as well is we must believe the promises of God. Believe the promises of God objectively, not contingently. Lay hold of the promises for yourself. I mean, it is true. We are grave sinners, far worse than we will ever understand. God is... Three times holy, far more holy than we will ever understand. Our natural in orientation toward him should be really in incapacitated quaking. At the very least, we should be like Luther, trembling at the altar and always going to, to confess our sins without Christ. However, as bleak as our, our situation may appear, 
It, it is nothing that the mercy and grace of God can't overcome. I mean, it's amazing in this passage, the very God we've sinned against, we've rejected by, by disobeying his commands, trampling all over him, spitting in his face. He's the one in this passage who initiates and executes our salvation. Listen again in verse 6, and notice this contrast, great sin, greater Savior. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And this is atonement. Uh, this is putting f- flesh on the bones of Leviticus. You remember Leviticus 16 and the sacrificial system. I'll read a little bit from chapter 16. 20 through 22. And when he, that is the priest, made an end of atoning for the holy places and the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall present the live goat. So they've killed a goat and spread the blood over for atonement. But they have a live goat, a second goat. And Aaron shall lay both hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel, all their transgression, all their sins. And he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness. The goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area, and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. This is the image here that we have in Isaiah 53 as well, placing our iniquities on the scapegoat to go off and to carry our iniquities away into the wilderness. Humanity, we're an odd bunch. On the one hand, we think, Oh, we're not that bad. On the other hand, we think, I'm far too bad. The impulse is the same as pride, but I'm not that bad. But God surely can't forgive me for these sins. Isn't that strange? He's laid the sins of other people on the goat. He's laid most of my sins on the suffering servant. But that one, that really bad one that I keep doing that I'm going to do tomorrow, surely not that one. But here, even as Aaron places all the sins of the people on the scapegoat, this prophetic promise says that the Lord himself will lay on the suffering servant the iniquity of us all. This assurance that Stan and I were talking about of salvation has two aspects. It has the objective and the subjective. The objective saving promises of God, they're unshakable, they're irrevocable, they're stable, they're reliable. Our apprehension of those things, on the other hand, wavers. It's not very reliable. The degree to which we feel the reliability of God's promises. That waxes and wanes in our sinful hearts because as sinners we have a hard time believing God fully. So the key to cultivating a hearty, subjective, experiential confidence of our salvation is the objective, is knowing God's promises, objectively massaging those promises into our hearts. Uh, Robert Murray McShane famously said, For every look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. That's what we're talking about here with the promises of God. For every look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. It's good advice. Of course, look at yourself, examine yourself, 
but then take ten looks at Christ. So whenever we look at ourselves, we're inevitably going to be disappointed. Uh, we're going to feel the weight of failure, of not living up to the glory of God. And if your disappointment in yourself leads you to say, I must do better to earn God's favor, I must measure up or he won't love me, you'll only ever encounter more disappointment because you're never going to overcome that hurdle. It's too high. But if your self-analysis leads you to say, I need rescue, I'm a great sinner and I need a great savior, then you'll begin to find hope. For every look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. So the promise that's laid out in this passage is not, God will help you to do better in dealing with your character flaws. The promise in this passage is, God has provided a way to expiate and atone for the grave sins of his people. That's a solid rock promise. That's a promise to build a life upon. And of course, that promise finds fulfillment uh, in the historical person and work of Jesus Christ. And that, that's our final point here is fulfillment. Fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Uh, my uncle Brian, who's younger than my dad, was visiting. He joined us for our cruise family Thanksgiving in Colorado Springs. Um, he and his family. And at the hotel where they were staying, he noticed some Orthodox Jewish priests, or some, somebody all garbed up, Jew, Jewish folks, and he went up to them and said, can I ask you a question? And they said, yes. And he said, why don't you believe that Jesus is the Messiah? They said, we don't know. That's what we've been taught. Now, I've tried a little bit, not really, but I, theoretically, the outline of this sermon is need, promise, fulfillment. So I've tried to hold off a little bit talking about Jesus till the fulfillment part, but it hasn't worked very well for me because Isaiah 53 is so obviously about Jesus. This is about Jesus. The shadow caster has appeared. So when you look at your sin and you wonder whether God could really save a sinner like you, when you feel like the chief of sinners... Look up and take ten looks at Christ. So I have ten things from this passage. Ten different looks at Christ. First, look at Christ who was pierced for your transgressions. I'm a, I'm a terrible sinner. Christ was pierced for your transgressions. He was crushed for your iniquities. He was chastised for your peace. He was wounded for your healing. He bore your sins on his head. He was stricken so that you could be among the people of God. He was crushed. He was put to grief. He was subjected to the anguish of soul in order to be, that we would be accepted as righteous. He was made an offering for your guilt. There's ten looks at Christ right there in one passage. And why? Why should we take comfort in the anguish of the only innocent man who's ever lived? Well, because it accomplished what was promised in this passage for, for you and for me. Um, I have five more things to add. Why not take 15 looks at Christ? This is what was accomplished according to this passage. He has carried off your iniquities into the desert, never to return, never to haunt you again. 
His chastisement has brought you peace. Peace with God. Peace in heart. The Lord has seen his offering and accepted it. It worked. It says in verse 11, The anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. God satisfied. His, his sacrifice was good enough. He is making us to be accounted righteous before God. He is made, is making, and will continue to make intercession for us. These are all the promises that are bound up in this amazing chapter, Isaiah 53. And that's it, really. That's the bedrock hope and security of the gospel. Our great need is sin and its penalty. God's great promise is what theologians call penal substitutionary atonement. That's what this is about. That is to say, there was a penalty for sin, and he came in as our substitute. The suffering servant would come and remove our guilt and pay the penalty in our place, which would satisfy the justice of God. And Christ's great fulfillment of that promise is that he has accomplished the promise. We only have to lay hold of it by daily looking to Christ. So with this great news as our life's foundation, uh, sure, we'll tie into those tree shakers from time to time or regularly, but we'll never encounter a tree breaker. We'll never be broken. Our roots will grow deep into the soil knowing I indeed am a great sinner and I am in need of a great Savior. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So for every look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. Amen.